0: Hey, this is Pastor and you're listening to Behind the Decks. Hi, Venters, and welcome back for another episode of Behind the Decks, She's a Vent music podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Wow, it's been a long time since I did one of these, isn't it? Each pod, I check in with DJs and producers from the UK and beyond. We discuss their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly, the person behind the decks. My special guest for this week's episode is Joseph, who goes by the alias Indigo Eyes. Joe has been producing records in the UK dance, R&B and funk scene for a couple of years now. So I came across him through an unbelievable remix he did of Kahina's track all over again. I then sent him a DM straight away after hearing it. I was so excited. And then here we are. So in this episode, we discuss performing on S.G. Lewis's Lockdown live stream, the mental exhaustion that comes with pitching songs to Spotify playlists with questionable gatekeepers and perfectionism in music production. We also discuss his experience of eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy or EMDR and how it changed his life for the better. We also discuss about his lived experience of depression. So get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go behind the decks with indigo eyes. Welcome to Behind the Decks, mate. Thank you so much for coming on and letting me check in with you. I was so gassed when I heard your Kahina remix. I just had to get you on. So thank you to Instagram for sending me that advertisement. Please don't send me any duff bangers, please, because I just want good bangers if you're sending me then personalised ads. First off, how are you keeping, mate? How are you?
1: I'm good, thank you very much, mate. It's sunny, so I'm feeling good. And I'm honestly packing up today to get ready to leave my University of Manchester to come back to my home in London, which is exciting i'm
0: looking forward to that nice man nice and i'm sure it'll be a welcome break from just like the absolute chaos that's been going on at every single university recently
1: yeah, I mean, it's been a little bit crazy over here. I had COVID myself, so I was stuck inside for a few weeks. You know, I mean, the universities are the worst place for it. But I think everyone here is safer than the media gives it. I mean, no one
0: I know leaves their house that often. So <laughs> I don't think it's too bad. Exactly, man. I have just I just feel for you guys so much who've been going through this as university students. But on to positive things. We've got so many great things to talk about, mate. Shall we just crack on with the show?
1: Yeah, let's go for it, man. <music>
0: Let's start the pod as we always do on Behind the Decks, mate, by talking about your musical journey and how you came to be Indigo Eyes and this brand. Before we do that, can you tell me about how your love affair with music began for me? You know, what were some of your favourite records growing up? Your, I know the, the age gap between us is a little bit, but I'm sure I'm not going to feel old when you start telling me about your favourite <laughs> records. Maybe your music idols, inspirations, and then how you sort of got into producing and playing instruments. I understand, um, like me, you were, you were a bit of a pop-punk head at the start.
1: Yeah, you definitely, you definitely won't t- feel too old from some <laughs> of my inspirations. I started getting really interested in music when I was probably around six or seven which is i'm quite young but i think the age that most sort of musicians get into it i listened to a lot of green day red hot chili peppers i always kind of pictured myself at a young age being older with like long hair with a guitar on stage at like a sweaty festival screaming some lyrics about like teenage romance at a crowd but i mean you know Things change over time, and that's not always what I ended up wanting to do. But I do still have a massive love for that kind of music. But I think I slowly started discovering electronic music at probably 11 or 12. I got into, I was listening to like Majestic Casual and Cloud Kid and Koala Kid and all those kind of YouTube channels that had little bits of electronic music. But I always just kind of used it as background music and never knew it was really what I wanted until... Like I mentioned to you when we talked, I went to the Martin Garrix concert when I was 15, which honestly like changed my whole life. It just set me on like a completely different path than what I thought I was going on. I was 15 at the time and I was with my mate in Magaluf in Mallorca, which is not the place for a 15-year-old, to be absolutely fair, but my parents let me go there on holiday with him because it was like a family friend. He was going with all of his mates because he's a few years older than me. And I obviously, at 15, you're a bit nervous about that kind of stuff, but you don't want to get left out. So you just kind of suck it up and go anyway. So we got me a fake ID sorted for that night and snuck me into the gig. And it just blew my mind. Like the lights, the lasers, the synths, like the energy was unlike. I've been to a lot of shows, I've been to a lot of gigs before of rock stuff or pop stuff or just general, like more live acoustic music. But I'd never felt the energy that there was in that place like it was just incredible it was amazing
0: a lot of people have their entry point into dance music with edm and i think for a while i maybe had some sort of like snobbery back in the day and i was like oh edm's not this, not that good and da, 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 da. but now i've sort of got a bit older i realized that it's an entry point for a lot of music fans and then people sort of mature and they discover all sorts of different parts of, of dance music and for you You know, you got into Majestic Casual when you were sort of 11 or 12. I got into Majestic Casual at uni. So the disclosure scene was very much my scene and Bondax and all those other people. Every producer was called Panda. (laughs) Can you just tell me how that Martin Garrix and that Magaluf experience changed your musical journey in regards to being an artist? Because I understand that you wanted to be a singer songwriter for a while. And then that moment sort of changed your perception and how you wanted to be more of a, a dance oriented producer or artist going forward.
1: I was always very keen on live shows. And I think that was something that influenced my decision on what I wanted to do. I've never been scared of the stage. It's always something that I've had like a real interest in. But I never thought producers or electronic musicians had the opportunity to be on stage. And then when I saw Martin Garrix up there, just like absolutely going for it, jumping all over the place, getting the crowd like really, really rolled up. I realised that it was very much something that is possible and is incredible. And I mean, that feeling of being on stage must just, you know, I haven't experienced that yet because I started music over lockdown, but I'm sure is incredible. It kind of made me realise that there's just so much more to do with electronic music than I thought. And some of the chords, I mean, Martin Garrix is known for, Quite like emotional sounding EDM tracks, which isn't also something I'd heard before. Before then, I'd only heard Tiesto and Mike Williams and more sort of commercial, non emotional at all, just house bangers. But when I heard some of those fat synth chords coming out of the huge tower speakers, it just blew my mind and I realized it was exactly what I wanted to do with my life.
0: Like you said, you started music during lockdown, which you know, most people started a podcast during lockdown, but you decided to go on this musical journey a bit more. Can you talk to me about how Indigo Eyes was born in a bit more detail then during lockdown? What was the inspiration behind the name? And does it hold any special meaning to you or your mental health? Or did you just pull it out of a hat and it stuck like a lot of those lo-fi house DJ names seem to be?
1: <laughs> well, the Indigo Eyes idea, when it wasn't called Indigo Eyes, started, I think, around July before university. So about nine months before it actually became in the guise. It was just me realising I started really diving into the catalogues of Disclosure and S. G. Lewis and Luna George and people that I really love. And that was when I had the real click moment of it's got the emotion I want, it's got the stage presence I want. These are the kind of sounds I need to make. And then I just fiddled around on logic. For a few months but like nothing serious I mean it was the beginning of university I was going clubbing four to five days a week you know I had exams and stuff I would probably get two hours in a week which anyone who's an artist knows is not enough time <laughs> to be putting into anything and I had aspirations to do something proper with it but then when lockdown hit and I was forced back inside and I moved back in with my mum and clubbing and nights out and distractions weren't really a thing I kind of sat down and thought if I put absolutely everything I have into this right now maybe something can happen by the end of the year so I started that year with like no finished music I'd never finished a song ever I didn't have a finished song on my computer I just had little random beats that I'd whipped up in an hour on logic and I'd realized that it was exactly what I needed to do so I think in that first two months of lockdown between March and May I made 20 Indigo Eyes-esque tracks which kind of really like laid out the sound for me and then I had that whole thing with SG Lewis where he was having a live stream with a few hundred people like a few thousand people I'm not sure and I like requested to be in the live stream just as a laugh and I wasn't sure about my music yet still. I'd created the Indigo Eyes page, but there was nothing really on it. And I had all these demos that I wasn't even sure if they were good or if, like, I was feeling fairly uninspired. And, like, maybe i it's all in my head and I like my music. And then I got on this live stream and I explained that I was trying to make music. And he was like, go on, mate, like, play it to every one of the live stream and, you know, showcase what you've been making. And his response was just like amazing. He loved it. He went into my DM straight away and was super supportive. Everyone who was watching the stream, I suddenly got like hundreds of followers in like seconds. And it gave me like a massive boost of inspiration. One of my biggest idols ever approves of what I do. And all of his fan base love it as well. So I should really go for this. And I started, I think the day after that, for the entirety of summer of lockdown, I started putting in six, seven, eight hours a day, every day on music and just would never stop. And I probably made thirty-five tracks so forty five tracks over the next few weeks and ended up with the four for the EP, which were my favourites. But as for the Indigo Eye's name, I just thought it sounded cool. <laughs> I'm saying... <laughs> I'm sorry that there's no deeper meaning. I just thought it sounded cool. Indigo is one of my favourite colours and I just thought
0: Indigo Eyes sounded cool. Amazing, mate. Amazing. (laughs) And for the listeners, how would you describe that sound and the music you produce? I mean, I know who S.G. Lewis is and I know the sound that you produce, but tell the people who might not have never heard of you.
1: I always go with warm. I want my synths and I want my drums to all sound like warm and lush. And when I'm making a track, I always have in my head... Could I listen to this if I was driving through the middle of the countryside at four in the morning and the sun's rising or, you know, just in the evening and the sun setting? Like, is it relaxing enough? Does it make me feel calm enough? But also, does it have that level of kind of edge, like clubby sort of preying for a night out edge to it as well? I've kind of always strived for it to be something that can comfort people, but also get them a bit excited. I think Disclosure and S.G. Lewis do it really well with their songs kind of have that warmth and that atmosphere and it kind of helps you relax. But also, if you slap that on in an Uber on the way to a club, like, you're still going to get excited. That's my main goal, is to make people feel like that with my music as well.
0: 100%, mate. And Disclosure and SGLIS are definitely the GOATs for producing that sort of feeling. How did you develop your skills as a producer and a DJ? Because you do both, albeit producing is your main shtick, I've spoken to a few DJs and they're all very keen to make clear how vastly different the skill sets are between (laughs) being a DJ and being a producer. Is it becoming more of a given now that you need to be able to do both to succeed in the industry? Yeah I mean a lot of my sort of
1: producer DJ mates will say no like you can but yeah (laughs) at the end of the day you kind of have to. The thing is I'd regard myself as an okay producer like I've put a lot of time into it and I think I can get something that sounds good. But as for DJing, I'm a pretty dodgy behind the decks, so to speak. <laughs> but I bought a pair of CDJs for my birthday this year, I'm pretty sure. Not like do the entry-level ones, but a tiny bit above that. I think that like the 800s or something. And I'm going to host a load of live streams this summer on Instagram where I basically figure out how to be a good DJ. Because... <laughs> I mean, it's more fun doing it to an audience and I also need the practice, but they are completely different things. My skills in production have not helped me one bit in learning to produce and same vice versa, I'm guessing for most people who learn DJ first. But I think a lot of electronic musicians want their shows to be not a DJ show, but like Flume has it, like a production show. Like you have that whole set, you have all your synths, you have you know an Ableton live suite it's all running off of one thing and you can play any instrument there and it's like you know that would be an amazing experience as an artist but on the come up so to say when you're not at a huge global level yet places aren't going to book you to do that set because it costs so much money unless your disclosure or flume they're not going to let you bring 800 drum racks and 12 junos and a profit and basically complicate the entire festival or stages live set up just for you unless you're going to bring in all the crowds so even flume and disclosure the first years of their career they didn't have like an immense live set they just had to dj so you kind of have to do that to go to smaller festival stages to get your name around so that the end goal is like i'd love to do a big live set with loads of instruments and stuff and i can just go and play everything but Currently, I know that I'm not going to get booked for that. So hopefully I'll get some like lighter
0: DJ gigs, basically. Just building on that, when it comes to producing, DJing, playing instruments, which one of those helps you more with your mental health? And what does producing or playing music have generally on your mental health, would you say?
1: Like it's such a double edged sword. It helps me massively when I produce, but also it can make me feel really like useless if I don't produce anything good but at the same time I definitely think the positives outweigh the negatives massively it's something that really has always helped me just express how I feel just through sound if I want to relax I can whip out an electric piano on logic and just play chords that make me relax and then build drums around it and it's kind of like therapy it takes me out of my headspace I'm not really concentrating on what I'm doing it kind of flows quite naturally to be honest and I can just kind of sit there and do it and then I come out the other end with something that I enjoy listening to so if other people do that's kind of a plus it is a massive help for my mental health and sort of just ground me in the everyday
0: you mentioned there how it can make you feel bad if you let it or you get frustrated and perfectionism culture is something i've discussed with a few other guests on behind the decks mate how does it affect you as a producer and your mental health and at its worst has it ever made you question your own self-worth or self-esteem or maybe leaked into other areas of your life outside of music
1: absolutely it's a huge part of my life and i think it's the same for all other producers and i think it can sometimes shroud your whole life you don't leave the feeling of what you've made in the studio when you leave it kind of stays with you and if you haven't made something good that day it can make you feel like you're worthless as a person in a really weird way when music is your life and i i mean i don't earn near enough for it to be my life income at the minute but i would consider it my life as my goal and it's what i do 80 90 percent of the time that i'm not having to do other things i associate my creative output with my self-worth massively And if I've made something really good, it can leave me feeling really positive and happy for the rest of the day. But if I haven't, it can do the opposite. And I think that's something I'm working on at the minute, is kind of separating me from the music. Because I think if you let yourself become the music too much, as good as that is for self-expression, it can often lead to you feeling unhappy with yourself afterwards. It's a really weird thing. And I know a lot of producers who feel the same thing because... When I was awful at producing, I would be like, oh, if you could make something that you want to listen to and other people want to listen to it, that must be the best thing ever, which it is. 100% it's the best thing ever. But it also, on days when you can't do that and that you know you can, it's so much more frustrating than when I couldn't do anything and I still wouldn't get anything out. It was like, yeah, that's fair enough. I can't do anything.
0: <laughs> I get you, mate. I get you. It's a really big, It's a really big conundrum, I think, a lot of producers face. When we spoke off air, another issue you wanted to discuss within the industry is secrecy in the producing scene. Now, whilst I get that some producers are wary of sharing their methods, and we've had a couple of horror stories actually on here, when that can go wrong or when you place trust in someone and they don't give that trust back, has that secrecy element affected your efforts to build relationships or find your community within this scene? And do you think maybe that's a symptom of some of the dark elements within the industry that people don't really talk about?
1: I think, as much as musicians and producers and artists don't like to admit it, there's always the level of competitiveness, regardless of who you are, and regardless of you know oh, I just want to grow the whole scene, which i do i love I love the dance music scene, and I want it to flourish as i mean as much as it isn't as much as it can. You want to be one of the people that's driving it at the end of the day, and no one wants to sit on the back seat and not play a part in it, and everyone wants to be. A character in it and people sometimes let that get the better of them and i think it's important to distinguish being competitive and allowing it to treat others badly you can be competitive and want to make something really great but i think you've got to not want to take away from other people's stuff you've just got to want to really drive your own music and sort of help other people in ways you can but not in ways you're not comfortable to and I think a lot of producers that I know, I mean, they would never like release all of their patches that they've spent years making on synths and all of their signature sounds. And you can't really blame them because it's something they've spent years doing and they don't really want to put it out there. But I think teaching people how to make their own sounds and how to produce on a more fundamental level and like what everything does and techniques for making dance music and house music is a really good thing to spread because then everyone has an equal opportunity and if they want to put in the hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of hours to make it their own sound and really master it then that's up to them but at least they have the foundational tools like over lockdown way more producers and djs have started streaming on twitch and stuff disclosure and decaf and leno as well host like amazing streams where you can see how they do everything i think leno is by far the most open i don't know if you've heard of his yeah, big fan. yeah right? big fan Yeah, yeah yeah leno is brilliant you know he was quite early electronic music i listened to and he really shows everything he doesn't keep anything to himself he shows all his guitar chains all his vocal chains every single synth patch he's basically ever used which is great But at the same time, I now hear hundreds of people who all sound identical to Leno because you need to show people how to create their own sound and how to make music, but not how to make your sound. Because I think if you do that, everyone is going to sound like you and no one's going to move the scene forward at all. And I think especially Disclosure did that brilliantly mm. this summer. They showed some basic how-to-make dance synths, but all of their complex synths, I mean, they just they have it bounced to audio, and you can just see the track, which is fine. And they're just helping people get basic vocal recording techniques, synth chains, like stuff that makes your track sound beefier and better. But they aren't showing you how-to-be Disclosure. They're just showing you how-to-be a good dance music producer, which... I think there's a really big difference between. And I think it's great they're doing stuff like that. Before lockdown, I hadn't seen any producers do that. I hadn't seen anyone share their secrets. I mean, when I started learning, I had no idea what I was doing. And I was watching a bunch of kids on YouTube tell me how to do it. But they didn't really know what they were doing they were 22 year old kids in their bedrooms you know with FL studio telling me how to mix the profits and you know they hadn't ever got a song with any success so they didn't have a massive idea of what they were doing and i think it's great that some of the big names are now taking a step back to sort of help everyone else
0: yeah it's amazing man i saw i think i remember seeing disclosure do a short tutorial of how they made f for u and that just like blew my mind how kind of simple the vocal sample was and how they recorded yeah. that and and they made it into a number 1 so yeah it's definitely it's definitely great that they're doing that and people forget that when I was in uni disclosure were basically uni kids and they had a number 1 album when they were 18 19 years old and basically created this R&B funk scene which is now thriving i want to move on to being independent in the music industry which can be helped or hindered depending on who you who you speak to and how you can get success a lot of artists, when it comes to being creative, there's sometimes a stigma, there's sometimes people kind of glorify it a bit too much. But for you, you told me you're fair, there's still lots of pressure to use labels because of the access they have to popular Spotify playlists and therefore clout and streams. I think you used the phrase "topsify" playlist to kind of illustrate this point. Can you tell me a bit about <laughs> that and how that affects artists' mental health or maybe they see the shady goings on when it comes to how some artists get access to those blogs or those playlists or just that level of access in the industry generally
1: yeah i think in the age of streaming it's a huge thing i think labels really do the three majors obviously like warner universal sony like have a big hold over spotify i mean they have shares in the company they're big names in it and if you release with one of those labels, they're going to shove you straight in. Like you mentioned, there's playlists called Top 5 Playlists on Spotify, which Spotify push and they have millions and millions of followers. They're bigger than New Music Friday. They're huge playlists. And if you go down the songs on there, it's all from major labels and they all get shoved on there on release day. And it's, you know, it's an instant boost of a few million streams in the first week, regardless of who you are. And I think that can often be tempting to artists for clout to go oh yeah i'll release with them get a few million streams but when you release with one of the majors you are not making any of the money at all you're just getting clout you're still broke like most people are. forget you that don't have, they <laughs> when it comes you to still streams. you still have like honestly you still have no money but you just got loads of streams also the difference is when you have all those streams it doesn't mean that anyone knows who you are And it doesn't mean any big artists are going to want to work with you because they know how it works, too. And they know you might have just written one good song, released it with a major, got a few million streams and you're still the same producer, whatever artist, singer. Nothing has changed. And I think that's what a lot of people forget. They think that those streams are going to be what opens loads of doors for them which in some ways it can if those streams are organic and if you've grown an actual hit. And if the general public know who you are, they're invested in you as an artist, they're invested in the song. But people put those playlists, those big playlists that are curated by Spotify and have massive influence on the majors, people just put them on shuffle and they don't know who you are. <laughs> You're getting millions of streams from people putting a house music playlist on shuffle and not even listening to your song. It will look cool for 10 minutes, and then that will wear off and you'll realise that it hasn't done anything. I watched a breakdown video the other day of the number of artists that stay signed to major labels. I think out of like 500 artists that were signed last year, there's only 14 that haven't been dropped. Don't quote me on that. It's It might not be 500, but I know the 14 was right out of a few hundred, whatever it was. Which is just mind-blowing because they pump a load of money into loads of different artists hoping that one of them blows up. And then when they don't, they just get dropped. And then as an artist, if you've always relied on a label or a major to push you and all of your streams just come from shuffle playlists, then you have no idea how to A, build a fan base or B, get any like actually organic growth or streams on your own. And you are like completely clueless. Whereas I really respect people like, I know you have, like, Pastel on the show and Jarfunk. Those are producers that I've known for ages in the scene because they got their names around. They ne- they've never signed with a major, from what I'm aware of, on anything big. You know, they might have done some releases with, like, smaller labels, but they know how to cultivate a fan base and they know how to grow organic streams. And I'd like to say the same for myself, even if I'm not at that level yet. I mean... I've put out all of my music completely independently. And, you know, I've spent hours learning how to... content to put out, how to promote stuff. You've got to know all of that as an artist so that when, at the end of the day, the label drops you because you haven't written your 12th number one in a row, how am I going to keep putting out music and figuring out how to get people to listen to it? And I think it's a really important skill that not many artists
0: have. When an artist puts out a new track, mate, Often you'll see them thanking indie music blogs or websites or outlets for sharing it, playing it on their radio stations, maybe doing write-ups about it. It could lead you to believe that there's this really wholesome relationship whereby blogs pick up those songs organically and share those artists just because they love them. And that might be true for some of them. It's not always the reality, is it?
1: No, it's really not. But in my experience, I've had some really, really great relationships with blogs and with indie playlisters, because you know when you get past the new music fridays and the big spotify playlists there are loads of indie playlists that have followings from smaller audiences who know what music they like they follow the playlist because it has music they like in it and if you become friendly with those curators and they like whatever you put out you're going to end up reaching that audience and then reaching another audience and it does just grow I remember when I got featured on This Song is Sick, I thought it was really cool that they, like, for, I think it was Forbidden that got featured first. And I was like, oh, this is, you know, that's a blog that I, I've known about for a long time. So I just went on the site and looked at who had written it and then followed them on all my socials and sent them a message just being like, thank you so much. Because they, you know, they have to write blogs about artists who are never going to read the blog, first of all, like if they cover like a Skrillex song. He's probably never going to see the blog. He's not going to know who you are. Which I think if you take your time to write them a, pers- like a personal email or a personal message and just be like, thank you so much, like it really means a lot. And you sort of build that relationship. You can build like an indie level relationship with slightly bigger stuff if you really put the time into it. I think there's also a level of you have to have someone to help you make the connections first. Like I work with a promotions and marketing team called Longevity PR. They're like amazing at what they do. They handle all of my pitching for my singles not all of my singles but just the ones that main EP ones that I need a bit of help with and they're amazing what they do but I understand that a lot of people don't have access or connections I met them through friends of friends which was really really helpful for me and they manage a lot of artists I really like they work with James Vickery from London who's great he had that pressure song which blew up which they handled all of that and that was great but It's a difficult thing to get into, and they helped get me a lot of connections at the beginning. And I think you have to be willing to sacrifice. I know people always say, like, you've got to sacrifice all your earnings at the beginning of something to actually make a living off of it. And that's so true. Like, I put all of the earnings off of the EP back into hiring longevity again because of the work they did with me. But it's a multi-pronged thing. I know artists who work with them who don't do anything on their own side and their songs do nothing. Like, that's how I ended up landing the Wonderland premiere was because they know Wonderland and they pitched some of my songs and they loved them and that was great. And I got featured on it and it helped me. But when I've got a song coming out the week before, I spend hours every day finding my own indie playlist to submit to, like, my own bloggers, messaging everyone who's ever promoted something for me before, And just trying to like strengthen those connections. It's so important to have like a connection on a human level.
0: Another joy of being an up and coming artist, Joe, and there's a lot of downsides, but there's also a lot of upsides, is finding vocalists for your bangers. (laughs) Can you tell me about the mental process behind that? And then the ratio here when it comes to how many invites you send out and then maybe the mental effect of how many blanks you get? Because it's a similar process (laughs) to sending out podcast invitations, mate.
1: (laughs) yeah it's uh oh it's so it can be so difficult sometimes. I think the hardest thing that happens is when I hear someone's voice, and I've never heard them before. they might have a hundred k monthly on Spotify, which means they're like reachable. they've got an audience, but I'm not gonna be able to message Julie for and she'll respond, but like you know some because you know everyone would like to work with those people but sometimes you hear a voice that's undiscovered and you're like right I can get to this person and they sound brilliant so kind of subconsciously normal normally I'll sit into sit in the studio and I'll start writing immediately and I'll have their voice in my head kind of in the background and I'll spend days writing what I don't even mean to be that what I think is the perfect track for them and then I'll be like, oh yeah, I've been writing this kind of accidentally for them because I've been so inspired by their voice. And then I'll send it to them and I will never hear from them. (laughs) And it's like, I've just spent three days of my life writing what I felt like was the best crafted song that they, you know, their voice would fit really well. And you never hear back from them, which is when you have to kind of compromise and start looking around and thinking, right, who else is going to work all right with this? I think with each song, Sometimes I send it straight away. Like Jay did I sent to Georgie immediately. She was the first person I sent it to. And I mean, she hadn't released anything back when we wrote that. And she jumped on it straight away, which was great. But some tracks I've sent to so many people. I think the most I've had was I sent it to like 10 to 15 vocalists, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it really is. Like you can't just send a certain instrumental to anyone. It has to be someone that you genuinely believe is going to fit the track. And so you have to spend hours going through Spotify looking on like the fans also like section to just get similar voices but then 99% of them don't work anyway and like it takes hours sprawling through indie undiscovered artists to find someone that sounds good and then actually getting to the point of a finished song takes so much longer. I think from the start of the process of me thinking who's going to sing on this? To me having an actual vocal in my computer is months like three to four months minimum which is why whenever you hear any song it's been made probably like a year or two ago because the process just takes so long like when i it makes me laugh when i play some of my, my, mate, my mate's music and they're like oh this is great when's it coming out and i'm like in seven months <laughs> and they're like <laughs> they're like well you've got it right here what do you mean i'm like well this is a demo vocalist it's not mixed it's not mastered i haven't finished the production this has got like a few more months in the pipeline, and then you've got to pitch at Spotify six weeks before. You know, it's a whole process. Yeah. But
0: when, when they see the machinations, they sort of realize a bit more, don't they? <laughs> like putting out one song takes
1: so long. My next single to come out is coming out in July, and it's with Georgie O'Brien again, the girl from Jaded. Me and her work really well together, we're, we're good mates. And I think I started writing this song in January. And it's not, like, something I put in the back seat. This is a song that I've, like, worked on tirelessly for months. <laughs> and, I mean, I'm still not 100% comfortable with everything in it. And I'm not, like, this is, I, I don't know. Sometimes you can't put your finger on something, but you have to put the record out. Because otherwise, I will never release this song. And when I play it to people, they really like it. I can send it to you for, for some thoughts. Happy to and, hear it, mate. Happy to people, hear people, people like it. But I go, especially with the perfectionism we were talking about. I go so, so in depth with stuff sometimes that I can lose focus of why I'm even making that track or what I even like about it. It can go slightly too far, and sometimes you've got to put your finger down. I mix everything myself, but I have a guy I work with called Mark Dobson, who's an incredible master. He did. All early disclosure stuff, which is how I found him. And I have to just send it to him and be like, I'm done. Like The second I've hit that send on an email, it's over. Like, I have to get rid of this, which I think is what a lot of artists have. I remember listening to an interview with Medicine when I was 16, 17. I think it was a majestic casual interview. And they asked him, How do you know a track's done? And he was like, I know a track's done when I feel like if I'm going to listen to it one more time, I'm going to have to delete it off my computer. And I was like, I feel exactly the same. If I feel like I can't physically handle listening to this track one more time and everyone else is saying it's good, that's the important bit as well because sometimes you can't listen to it again because it sucks. But if everyone else is going, this is great, and you're going, I literally, you couldn't pay me to listen to click play one more time, then it's ready to go. (laughs) And you need to just move on from it regardless of if you think it's done.
0: Exactly, mate. Let's talk about those tracks then in more detail and your wider discography. So... The first track you ever put out was a record called Echoes in 2020. Can you tell me, first off, how that track came about, what you learned given it was your debut record, and then was there any nerves or anxieties? And then h- how do you sort of reflect on it now despite only being a year old? Are you as proud of it now as you were back then, or do you do you, do you laugh <laughs> about it, how, you know, maybe how the process of how it came about?
1: In a weird way, I am proud of it, but also it is by far the worst sounding song I've put out. I didn't have anything when I wrote Echoes. I'd written the instrumental for Close to You by then, I think. I think I'd written Close to You and I think I'd written Part of Higher last year. And that was all I had. And a few other like weird stuff. And this was when I'd spent, I think I wrote it about after about a month and two weeks into lockdown. After I'd been writing a bunch of stuff, loads of different beats and instrumentals and i was like right i need to put something out i was making sort of beat videos on instagram and people were going, we want an original song to listen to and i was like okay what is going to be my brand and i i sat and i got a logic file up and i was like okay this needs to be a song that contains everything i want people to associate with my music so i was like airy reverb guitar solo thing yes that's a cool thing I, i love guitar i play it on everything you know let's go with that Electric piano is one of my favorite sounding instruments ever. I love a Rhodes. It's beautiful. I literally would prefer it over any synth any day. I was like, so we're going to have that as the main intro synth. I was like, what's my favorite analog synth to use? I went with Diva, not analog, like analog representative in a hardware got up a vocal sample off of Splice, chopped the hell out of it. I love vocal chops. I want this to be associated with me as well. It was basically just a load of components I wanted to have to do with the Indigo Eyes brand. And then I sat and I wrote a song with them all and I restricted myself massively in what I could use and I just used those tracks. I wrote Echoes in about a day, maybe two, and I didn't know what mastering was or mixing was. So it isn't mixed or mastered, the song, at all. There is no mix or master. The only reason it is even listenable on Spotify is because Spotify has its own algorithm to make sure all the levels and everything are the same. On my actual computer, it's quiet and weird and doesn't work. I didn't even realise that people mastered songs. I didn't know anything. I think the day after I finished it, I uploaded it to Spotify immediately. And I was like, right, this is great. You know, you're know, meant to pitch it six weeks before. I think I pitched it like seven days before, and I was like, Yeah, this is I, who needs a playlist? Like, I'll just put it out, and it, everyone will love it, and it'll be great. <laughs> and like, people did like it, but I had no idea what I was doing. And it was such a learning experience in the importance of mixing and mastering, the importance of promotion, really taking your time to finish a song. It taught me a lot putting that song out, but I did not know what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you put out your debut body of work you mentioned it previously close to you which was an EP last year what does that project mean to you was that was that a big moment for you in having your first big body of work out there
1: yeah it was first of all the biggest relief I've ever felt in my life more than finishing my A-levels or my GCSEs or anything getting that record finalized was just a different level of feeling (laughs) it was kind of the embodiment of What I love about music, the Close to EP wasn't representative of exactly what kind of music I want to make or the kind of music that I want to be associated with me. But it was more proving to myself that I can make songs that people like. And regardless of if it fit, I feel like some of those songs aren't exactly what I wanted the Indigo Eyes sound to be, but I'm still super happy with what they sound like. And I'm very proud of that. It was the first thing I'd ever finished properly i'd sat down and i'd proved that i could make something and i'd always for years when i was messing around on logic for half an hour at a time and making some awful trap beat i was like you know one day i'll make something and i'll release it and it'll be a thing and people will be able to listen to it on platforms and just to have that was so satisfying i thought it was finished by the first week of august that year and the first song was due out the last week of september because I had a deadline with my marketing team. And I remember I had a proper perfectionist moment at the final week of August. And I had like a proper little mini meltdown over it because I'd never put out anything before. And I loved it so much. And I cared about the EP so much. And I remember I suddenly went like, it's not good enough. And I had a day where I was like, everyone's going to hate it. I'd spent six months of my life to eight months of my life probably on it. And I was like, it's just not good. And I stayed up all day and all night for about a week and a half, changing little things in the mix, re-recording instruments, altering loads of stuff. And in the end, it probably sounds about 2% different. It's probably unnoticeable. But I think that taught me that sometimes you have to let go. And I think it's something I've done better with new music. It's like that drove me to insanity. I was meant to be getting ready to go to university and I was just not moving from my desk i was hardly sleeping it was in my head like all the time yeah i wouldn't recommend anyone doing that it was definitely an interesting feeling but the relief of getting it out there and being able to just push it off into the world and let go was something else Mm. it was so good
0: after that you put out a track of a remix of joe hertz's colorblind which I guess, was pretty big, because Joe is pretty big in the scene. And then your (laughs) latest single, which is the reason we're talking right now, obviously, is your remix of Kahina. So I want to reflect a bit on your journey before we move on. Despite the fact that you're still quite early on in your career, mate, but so far, what has this musical journey taught you about yourself, and what have you learned along the way?
1: It's taught me to take life a little bit easier, even though I put a lot of pressure on myself to put out a a stream of music and for it to be good and for it to be a certain level of quality, you also sometimes just have to take a backseat and just relax a little bit. In my mind, I always thought to be a successful musician, you have to sit in the studio 12 hours a day, which is true on some days when you have to finish something, but you've also got to just breathe. I think people put sometimes people put too much pressure on themselves and they can end up just ruining them. I think it's just something you've got to be patient with. You've got to understand how your creative mind works because everyone's different. But it also taught me how much I love doing this. (laughs) I'd always been like, I'd love to be a musician, but am I going to be able to do something for that many hours a day, every day? You have to love it, regardless of what it is. Otherwise, you'll slack off. You won't do it. You won't finish stuff. You won't find the inspiration. You won't have the drive. But I think it taught me how much I'm willing to live and breathe it. Everyone's support so far is not something I take lightly at all. Like To be given the opportunity to be able to do something that I love so much permanently is such a big deal to me. And it made me realise that I don't care if I live in a tiny one bedroom flat in the future with a kitchen at the end of my bed and like a bin as a toilet as long as I get to wake up every day, (laughs) weird analogy I know, as long as I get to wake up every day and just make music, that's all that matters, I
0: really don't care about anything else. We've talked all about indigo eyes mate. Let's go behind the decks and talk about your own mental health journey. So I ask every guest this question first. Tell me a bit about your early life, childhood, teenagers, And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Joe we meet here? Feel free to start in school if you want. I think when I was really
1: young, I was always referred to as a really confident kid. When I was probably five or six, sort of reception, year one age. But then I think when I started to hit slightly older, even just like 8, 9, 10, I was labelled as like the quiet kid very quickly. And I spent most of my school life as the quiet kid, which was fine with me. I was reserved and it was something I was comfortable with. I didn't like to talk. You can survive I was...
0: doing that. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hated school. I hated it. My parents knew I hated school. And it felt weird talking to a lot of my mates about it because not many of my mates hated school. I think one or two of them weren't fussed, but out of all of my close mates, it was often like, oh yeah, I I don't like doing science homework, but like, oh, it's fun coming to school and like messing around and doing whatever. But I just really hated it. I don't know why. I mean, I do kind of know why. I think I didn't like the people at my school very much, a lot of them. I think there was a lot of level bullying going on I don't think I was ever very comfortable I felt I don't know like in England you've got all the rugby lads and stuff and sometimes you can just feel like you're a little bit pushed to the side I never felt comfortable in my own skin I didn't like the way I looked I wasn't comfortable with who I was which I think impacted how I felt a lot at school I associated school with a bad place which also just didn't help and I think especially sort of the years of when I was like 13 14 when everyone is insecure if you've already been insecure for about five years when you're sort of hitting puberty it just makes it worse and I just really didn't like who I was I always felt like I wasn't cool enough you know especially like the blokier blokes I feel like would just pick on me I was never like happy at school and I had a few friends I had a few close friends but I just never felt comfortable around the majority of people. And I felt like my school was a very, I don't know, I don't often use the word toxic, but a very toxic place. And a lot of people who've come out of my school now have spoken up about how much they didn't like it there. But I think that's the case for a lot of people who go to you know all sorts of schools. But I just really didn't enjoy growing up, which I think made me rush out of the gate and not want to sit around and want to build a career immediately so that I could sort of just become an adult as soon as possible. I was being told all the time, like, enjoy school. It's like the best time of your life. And I just hated every day. And I was just like, this cannot be the best part of my life because this sucks. Mm. I've enjoyed the last two years infinitely more than I enjoyed a single day at school. You know, I left school just under two years ago now. And I can't even believe that people compare. I think the people who say that school is the best time of your life are the people who were either bullying people or were the really popular, annoying, loud people who've never been insecure or just sort of like the cliquey, stuck-up people. I think those are the only people in the world who go, yeah, school's the best time of your life. Because I think they peak there and I think everyone else realises how much it sucks when they leave. And I'm just so much happier now than I ever was at school. I, yeah, I've honestly never looked back. I get all these emails like, oh, yeah, you should go to, like, you know, we're having a reunion of class, whatever. And I'm like, I would literally never want to enter that place again, ever. You could, Like, you couldn't pay me. But I'm hugely grateful for the mates I made. They're still some of my closest mates in the world, and they've helped me through an unbelievable amount of my life. And I'll, like, forever appreciate them hugely for that. But I think the experience of growing up as a whole, I just hated.
0: I completely agree with you about the saying about the best days of your life are in school. I just think that's just complete rubbish, to be honest. I want to talk about the Joe we meet at age sort of 15 to 19, because you said you went through a period of depression in these years. If you could say, tell me how you felt during that period and then how that depression manifested itself and, and some of the difficult moments, if you could say
1: i think after years of not being comfortable in myself i think it can have a like aftershock type effect of just low mood and i think as well the thing i've learned a lot over the last few years is that when i feel anxious i have a period of where i feel low afterwards always if it's like high level anxiety not just like oh, i'm a bit worried about this if i feel like overwhelmingly anxious i will always feel low afterwards And going into school every day used to make me feel overwhelmingly anxious. And I used to hate it. And I think that's what ended up when I was sort of 15, 16. I was just in a constant low mood because I just hated every day. I was anxious every day going into school and I'd leave in low mood. And I just became more quiet and more sad because of it. And, you know, I was classic with my parents, Especially when I was staying at my mum's, I would do anything to get a day off school. Anything, especially between the ages of 15 and 19. I would have probably thrown myself down the stairs to break my leg to get off school, if that was the option. I think I got into a really dark place when I was sort of 17, 18. I was really stressed with my A-levels. I still hated school and disliked everything about being there. I really still wasn't happy in who I was. A lot of people were growing up and getting girlfriends and experiencing that whole side of life. And I've changed a lot in how I look over the last few years. And in the final years of school, I was a very sort of like spotty, awkward kid. I was a bit chubby. I wasn't living that side of life either. So while I was having the high stress of school, I wasn't exactly enjoying myself. And I would just got in a really bad mind space and I just thought if this is all there is to life and this is meant to be the freedom and the fun and the friends and then like, what the hell am I doing? Cause this is just awful. I was in quite a bad place at the beginning of university and the summer, you know, that's meant to be the best summer of your life after a levels, which admittedly I would argue is the best summer of your life as someone who's come out of hating school. I think if you do that summer, right. And you know, My fairly smallish group of friends, I just spent the whole summer with them. And, you know, we did the typical buy an interrailing ticket and go around Europe and do that whole thing and have overnight trains and live that life. It's brilliant. I'd 100% say it was the best summer of my life. And I think it was one of the best times of my life so far. But I think when I came back to uni and I sort of got back to reality in September after that summer, I realised that if you spend six years of your life feeling low and feeling overwhelmingly anxious every day it sticks with you regardless if you're in a place where you still feel that i was very comfortable and happy at university and i liked what i was doing and i liked where i was i was happy at manchester i was happy in my halls i loved my whole house that i lived with i had friends there i felt comfortable i had space to express myself i just felt good but all of the issues i kind of brought with me from school and I really wasn't very happy underneath all of that which was something I found weird but had to learn how to deal with Mm. and that's when I kind of realized I need to get this all sorted out and I started you know going to therapy and taking medication I realized even if I'm in a place where I love being like university I was super happy with my whole physical surroundings and Mm. the friends I'd made I really wasn't happy because of the six years of baggage that were just still weighing me down. And I still felt like the same kid inside, even though I'd had an amazing summer and I'd made amazing friends and I looked completely different and I, you know, suddenly had girl interest, which is a huge part of growing up as a bloke. And I think my life had changed massively, but I still wasn't happy. And I realized that it was something I needed to, like, work through.
2: Mm.
0: Let's talk about therapy, because you've done a therapy that I've done, which is called Eye Movement Desensitisation and Reprocessing Therapy, or EMDR. Not many people know about it, because a lot of the time people will just do CBT, that's what's kind of offered as a blanket kind of policy for a lot of people, and it's very hard to explain EMDR. I think Prince Harry did it, which I think was really good for the conversation, it's almost like being on drugs at times, the way you yeah. have to go into yourself and speak to different versions of yourself. Just tell me and the listeners who don't know what it is about it and then how it helped you and your mental health, Joe.
1: It kind of allowed me to revisit old situations that used to make me feel helpless or just not happy as a person and sort of change how it made me feel, which was good. It would kind of let me change the scenario in my head and how I depicted it and give me a chance to, even if I'm not completely at ease with certain events or certain times in my life, it kind of gave me the chance to not be negatively affected by it now, which is something hugely valuable. I think when I started doing... MDR I would experience weird like dissociation stuff afterwards which was just like really weird but I think when you if you keep doing it and you kind of work it it can become something you're comfortable with doing and that can help you massively and like you mentioned Prince Harry doing it I do think it's something that the stigma needs to be taken away from massively I think it can help way more people than it does currently therapy as a whole is just a massively positive thing mm. and I especially I grew up with the mindset of if you're in therapy, there's something massively wrong with you. And it's like a shameful thing. And then as I got older, I realized that's just not the case. Everyone should be in therapy to some degree. I think that in everyone's life, there's a point where you need therapy. Everyone goes through something difficult in some scenario in some world. And even if you're, you don't go through something difficult and you're the person making other people's lives more difficult, then go to therapy and sort that out. I think there's a massive space for it in the world and I think I mean it helped me massively become more confident and be at ease with a lot of my younger experiences at school and become more happy at a core level so that when everything on the outside is good my like inner mind can just sort of accept it and be happier with what's going on and not sort of dwell on the past or have these negative backed up emotions.
0: Would you say it healed the way you view yourself and allowed you to reconcile the pain that you went through as a child and a teenager with how you are as an adult now
1: i think to a degree yeah i think there are some things that as a person you struggle to fully put away but i think i'm happy with my understanding of how to improve my own mental health now and i think i now have coping mechanisms that aren't getting absolutely blackout drunk on a friday night i've been partially sober in that i think i've drunk three times in the last 12 months which has been huge for me i don't enjoy alcohol anymore which is a really weird thing for a uni student obviously but i kind of realized that there are certain sacrifices you have to make if you want to be improving how you feel mentally and therapy can help you reach that point where you realize what you need as a person and how as an individual like not one size fits all you just there are certain things that you have to do to improve
0: you spoke about medication there as well how does the medication help you versus the therapy even on a day-to-day basis and you know we often say on the just checking in pod that everyone's mental health needs are unique to them and what works for one individual might not for another is that a perspective you share when it comes to medication or whether someone decides to take it or not?
1: I think it's something that you, if you're going to decide to take medication, it should be something you think about a lot and research and figure out if it's definitely something you need to do. In my case, when I realised that I was still very unhappy in sort of October, November time in the first semester of university, so like the year before COVID, I went to four or five assessments where they talk, I talked through sort of my mental health and my problems and how I felt on a day-to-day basis. And then I went and got a brain scan and got my bloods taken and all sorts. So they could measure the serotonin output in my head and, you know, all of that complicated biology stuff that I don't completely understand. But, you know, I figured that they would be able to, you know, the doctors can interpret that as you need this medication. And I mean, in my case, they found that after years of really high anxiety and constantly getting anxious and dipping off and having low moods and getting anxious and having low moods again i had depleted a large amount of any serotonin in my head and there was just very little that was making me happy and they put me on surgery which is an ssri to sort of rebalance the levels of serotonin in my head so that i don't just get rid of it all when i'm anxious or i'm like high functioning and that I kind of have a constant level so that I can not dip too low. But also, it doesn't let you peak too hard either, which can sound bad, but also be quite a useful thing so that you constantly are at a baseline where even if you aren't ecstatic, you're just like comfortably happy. Antidepressants don't make you happy. I think that's a massive misconception that a lot of people have. They just help you balance out your own feelings and stop you from getting that sort of spiralling, everything is awful feeling. And I think it helped me massively with that, yeah.
0: And as a final question, Joe, you've obviously come a really long way, even in such a short space of time. If you could go back and speak to that 13, 14, maybe even 15, 16 Joe, who was willing to break his own leg to get a day off school or just not enjoying that social environment, what do you think you would say to him, knowing what you do now?
1: Honestly, as cliche as it is, you can't worry about what other people think and you can't worry about your own image especially at that age if you're in school it does not matter everyone is stupid everyone looks weird and hormonal and it's just such a huge pot of feelings that everyone has at school it's just confusing and there's no need to believe that what the version of you that you are at school is what it's going to be for the rest of your life or the kind of people that you see at school is what's going to be the people you see for the rest of your life. Honestly, the second you leave and you get control of your own life and you can see the people you want to see and you can do the things you want to do, life gets infinitely better and way more fun. I wouldn't trade it for being in school for a million pounds.
0: We've come to the final topic, of conversation, Joe, on Behind the Decks. And it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, which is a general natter and light chat about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is in the moment, mate?
1: I'd say it's all right. I think it's not the best it's ever been because obviously we've just had clubs reopening ripped away from us and all of my live gig tickets have just been cancelled, which is same. always a bit of a hit. <laughs> but I think on a general, I'm excited for summer. I'm excited to get out of uni and move back home for a little bit. I miss my parents and my dog. I'm feeling all right. I'm hoping even if it's, I mean, everything's going to be in England this summer or you know, wherever respective people are. You know, just to sort of hang out with friends and enjoy little things and have a bit of fun.
0: What age do you think you were, mate, when you first became self-aware of your mental health and realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were in your mind and a product of your mental health?
1: 13 or 14. But I don't think I realised that it was something I could do something about or properly grounding it in these are things I need to practice getting better at until I was probably 16 or 17.
0: And then building on from that, tell me about the first conversation you've ever had with someone about your mental health. Who was it with? What impact did it have? And looking back on it, did it feel like a big moment or a weight had been lifted or you'd entered sort of a new chapter in your life? Or did it feel like something quite insignificant and nice and normalised?
1: I think it was pretty normal because I don't think I realised that it was about my mental health at the time. I remember I sat down with my dad one weekend when I was about 14 and I remember just explaining to him how unhappy I was at school because I think before I'd been like, oh, I don't really like school or I don't really want to go in today or, you know. But I sat down and just for about... 30 minutes I should explain the exact feelings and how every day going in made me feel and my dad just kind of explained his experiences and they were different but I don't know just made me realize that I mean my dad seems to me like someone who's got it all together and his school experience was just so awful as well he just had such a horrible time I don't know just helped me realize that it was more normal than I thought it was in my head and that it was something you could do something about and get to a better place and work past it, yeah.
0: What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health, mate? So it could be things people say to you, it could be a sound, it could be a social environment, it could be a location or a sensation in your body, or have you not figured all of them out yet?
1: I don't think I figured all of them. I really don't like it when people shout for no reason. That puts me really on edge. I can't explain why, I just don't like it. I don't like feeling like my life is too crowded or that I'm being asked too much of. I can often just close off if that happens. I need my own space to breathe and I need to be able to figure out what I want to do in my day-to-day and sort of just be able to not see people if I want to be alone. I was an only child growing up. I have step-siblings, but I was mainly on my own, probably like... 99% of the time and I think I'm very used to being on my own I'm very good at it which is a great skill I've learned now that a lot of my friends who grew up with siblings are awful at being on their own at university and I have cousins and stuff who just can't be on their own and that's something that I didn't value when I was younger but now I understand as an adult you're alone a lot and especially I've heard when I leave uni and I move into whatever house you'll be alone a lot And, you know, to be able to cope with that is a massively important thing. But at this age, sometimes I feel like people don't understand when I'm like, I just need to just be on my own right now.
2: Mm.
0: What tools do you use in your own life to improve your mental health, Joe, or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have really worked for you and really helped you? And which ones have you maybe tried out but haven't so much?
1: I think the ones that help me the most are sitting and making music which is great because it's my job and (laughs) and that can massively help my mental health on certain days going outside and doing sports is something i didn't realize how much i valued until this month to be honest i tried the whole going to the gym six times a week method which you know lots of young guys do As like, this is going to make me feel better. I'm going to go to the gym every day and get absolutely ripped. And I'm going to look like the Terminator and it's going to be great. And then you try it and the gym is good. And I think the gym is brilliant and it is a good outlet. And I still go probably three days a week, but going out and playing, I've started playing like basketball and tennis and just like having a kick around and just like playing with my mates. It gives you that level of social interaction, but without the pressure, you're not having a sit down conversation. You're still with people. And then you can go back and be on your own. I find that really nice. I found it's really helped me this month and this year in general with being stuck inside and not being able to go out to the pub and see people. I think being able to just play sports or just chat with like has massively helped me. And I think the gym can be quite an isolating place. I know people who became obsessed with the gym. And I think it's a big thing this generation as well with like go to gym all the time, be like a big man you've got broken up with good goes to the gym like it you know that's like a big thing it's like yeah you're sitting there listening to like drake talk about how much he hates people and women and you've got your headphones on and you're like pumping 40 kilograms and grunting excessively Yeah,
0: Marvin, marvin's room's not the one for that to be honest <laughs>
2: yeah
1: <laughs>
0: you are letting off steam
1: but that can't be your only way of letting off steam And I think also just being open with my mates about how I'm feeling. If sometimes I'm like, look, I might be a little bit MIA and I might not be around that much, that's fine. But also, if you want to see people, you can't sit around and wait for them to message you. Just send out a mass text and be like, who's around and wants to hang out? And I think sometimes if you're in a low mood, you can be like, oh, no one's texting me, like, no one wants to hang out with me. But actually, everyone else might be in the same boat. And I think there's a lot more similarities in the human experience of like being in your own head than I ever thought when I was younger. And I think it's important to notice how unbelievably similar everyone is in their own ways.
0: We talk a lot on this podcast, Joe, about toxic masculinity and positive masculinity. Hopefully in a few more years, toxic masculinity will be in a very small minority and positive masculinity will just be masculinity. When it comes to the former... What would you define it as? This is an open-ended question. You can answer it however way you want. And what examples of it have you experienced in your life that you can share with the listeners, whether that's in school or outside?
1: I think toxic masculinity comes in all sorts of forms. It's to do with, I think, muscle and size, I think is a big thing.
0: The man-shaming element. I think,
1: yeah, I feel a lot of the time, I'm quite a, I'd call myself quite a lanky bloke. I'm quite tall, but I'm quite skinny. And I feel like I've never been shamed or put down by a girl, which is often guys Lucky. will be like, oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. I've been, you know, you get, you can get like joked about, but I've never been made to feel like worthless because I'm not muscly. But by some guys, I don't know, I was called names at school and like I was sort of chubby and a bit out of shape at school and I was called all sorts by like the lads. It's something that, I didn't realise would happen so much between groups of guys. Guys just putting other guys down. And especially in front of girls, oh, it's just the worst. I can't think of a reason why
0: that would happen. Hmm.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, oh, here's a girl I want to impress. I'm a bit insecure. Let me make this other guy feel like shit. It's just so pathetic. I haven't let it get to me for years. And I think I'm very much at peace with if I see a guy who thinks that's the way that they should act, then that's fine. They can do them. It's pathetic, but you know, I'm just gonna let them be.
0: The small man syndrome, innit? It's like yeah. you can be six foot five, but you do that, and I think you're five foot two.
1: Yeah. Also, the it's not a, the problem I've had myself, but the height thing is. I'm six foot three myself, oh, so I'm quite blessed. large. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm five which ten, is... mate, at a push, <laughs> <laughs> which has always helped growing up. But I've never taken it for granted. And I've never discounted a bloke because he's short. But, I, you know, some of my mates who are blokes are like 5'4", five, 5'5". Five, five.
0: I think that's when girls treat you like shit. I will not date over six foot, mate. That's hinge, mate. That's hinge, not- <laughs> hinge mate.
1: <laughs> not even dating. Just being treated like a little pet, I think, is like... I don't know. I've seen it happen to guys and it's just not good. I do think on the reverse side, though, I became a little bit more popular... In my last year of school, in upper 6th, I started dating girls. I started hanging out with more laddy lads. None of them are my friends now. But for about six months, I sort of was kind of on the outside, but got to look in a little bit and see how lad lads talk about girls. And it is just awful. Like, it is just so bad. I honestly can't, couldn't believe half the shit coming out of their mouths. It made me honestly disgusted to be a bloke. And I think having seen that, it's influenced very much how I talk about women. I think in my group of friends, I never experienced that before hanging out a little bit with those like laddie boys. I've just seen some guys who just are oh, the worst. And the way they talk to girls is like they're so entitled. And I think being mates with girls as well is so important as a guy. And not mates with girls in like a, oh, we used to sleep together, or like, oh, I want to sleep with you kind of way. Just
0: platonic, purely platonic, Yeah, yeah. In
1: like a, you're a great mate, and like we hang out all the time, and most of my close mates who are girls have talked to me about their experiences with guys, and I think it really opens your eyes to what happens in the world and how to be a better bloke. And I think especially when you're growing up, There are things I massively regret saying when I was like 14, 15. We all do, do with. I think all of the guys I'm friends with now, I'd say are massively mature guys and would never be caught saying anything. But I think before we became mates with girls and we were like 13, 14, you know, the comments you make uh, about girls are just awful. And I think you don't learn how bad they are, especially because a lot of the time girls overhear it at school. And I think you don't realise how awful it is until you're older. A lot of guys still don't realise how awful it is. It's just an interesting dynamic that you can get between a platonic guy and a platonic girl. And I think it's something hugely valuable. But I also think some guys aren't ready for it. Mm. There's a lot of guys I know from school who I just don't think are ready for it and Mm. still just see girls as opportunities. Or I I don't like using the word objects because I think some guys do see girls as objects, but I think that's not the majority of the case i think it's seeing girls as like awards do you know what i mean yeah, I know what something you mean, like it's this whole like culture of i've done this with her and that with her and i'm gonna tell everyone
0: about it yeah it's um, trophies in it it's trophies
1: yeah, yeah like the rugby team at my school i think it was the rugby team or the football team i'm not sure got outed for having a the 11 blokes on it or whatever had a group chat where Every time they'd take a picture of a girl naked or something, they'd all just send it to each other. And they'd all put it on this group chat. And they used to use it as currency and like exchange it for stuff. And when everyone in the year found out, we were like, A, what are you doing? I mean, that's revenge porn. Yeah, yeah. and B, like, you've just made all these girls feel awful about themselves. It blew my mind that even guys that are like, oh, he's a bit laddie, but he's probably not an awful human. You're like, oh, no, he is. He is an awful human.
0: (laughs) As a final question, mate, this is a broad one as well. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to do it? Number one,
1: removing the stigma, which is, I know, much easier said than done, but covering it on the laddiest of places, rugby channels, football channels, I know it seems pandering and like it's shoehorned in, but put it everywhere. I think just having like posters and stuff up, which say like, it's okay for men to talk like is good, but put it in places which are uncomfortable. You've got to break the mold. You've got to like really break the mold. You can't just be like, right, it's mental health week or it's mental health day. It's like, you know, you've got to shove it in people's faces. Put it on packs of Doritos. I don't know. <laughs> that's a random example, but that's just... That's because I bought a pack yesterday. That's, um, <laughs> I think just put it everywhere you can and get influential people to talk about it. Get rappers to talk about it. Get footballers to talk about it. Get TV presenters to talk about it. And most importantly, open up to your mates because when one person does it, I think more follow... And I think if you open up to your mates and one of them calls you, I don't know, one of them just takes the mick out of you for it, then they're an awful mate and you shouldn't be friends with them. And I think the sooner people realise that, the more, like, the people who behave with toxicity or, like, behave in a way which they just want to act big themselves and put everyone else down will be cast aside and will be made to feel small themselves and will have to sort of adapt or die. Not literally die,
0: but adapt <laughs> fall behind and on that note Indigo Eyes thank you so much for coming on Behind the Decks thank you so much for having me it's been lovely we have come to the end of this episode of Behind the Decks I want to say a big big thank you to Joe aka Indigo Eyes for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me go Behind the Decks with him one of my favourite Indigo Eyes tracks Jaded will play us out And as usual, I'll put all of his streaming and social media links in the show notes. I will sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. If you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it, tell everyone you know. If you want to support us further, write us a review on Apple Podcasts or give us a five-star rating, that would really help the algorithms. You can also support us at Patreon. Through www.patreon.com/slash vent to help UK. If you don't want to do that and you want to make a one-off donation, you can visit our GoFundMe page, which is in the vent link tree on all our channels. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Decks and remember: it's always okay to
2: vent. up before you You left me waiting And now I'm jaded And I'm a little bit jaded by your love Boy I think I'll find